0: If you recall, uh, last summer, I'm not sure if you remember this. Some of you may not have been here at that point, but most of you here probably do. Does anyone here remember the fire pit story? I'm looking for like a nod. Okay, great. You remember the fire pit? Um, Some of you are like, remember the story, not the sermon? I felt so. That, that's the way it is a lot of times, right? We love the stories. Um, but the fire pit taught us how to pray, didn't it? We're to pray with shameless. Uh, boldness persistently, and that was from Luke chapter 11. Well, this week in Luke chapter 18, we come to a passage that's very similar, but it doesn't answer the the how question. This answers the why question of persistent prayer. So I want you to do me a favor this morning. Your Bibles are open to Luke 18. You have a pen there. I want you to circle two simple words as we begin. Two simple words, Luke chapter 18. And we're going to answer the why question, very similar to, uh, that ties into the, the first story in Luke 11. But in Luke 18, verse 1, I want you to circle the very first word in the NIV. It's the word then. When you do that, take your pen and just circle the word then. Underline it, square it, do something. Okay, now skip down to verse 8 of the same chapter. Luke 18:8, 8. And circle the word when. You see that in Luke 18.8? When. Okay, now put a finger on both. Kind of like this. Take this and just put a finger on when and a finger on then. Kind of a little finger version of Twister here in church. That'll work out pretty good. Okay, these two words. These two words unlock the parable of this widow and stern judge. Everything between your two fingers is explained by the words your two fingers are on. Okay? So you've circled then, you circled when. I want you to see that. First of all, with your index finger, you've got it on the word then. This word then refers back to what is in chapter 17, which is really a lot about, now watch me here, it's a lot about the coming of Christ in the future. It's about how the days are going to be when the Son of Man returns. Are you listening to me? And how that if, if, if there's someone in the field, don't go back for your stuff. And he paints a pretty gloomy uh, a picture of despair as he talks about the end of time. It is in light of this whole chapter about how things will be at the end that he says in eighteen one. Watch this. Then, after explaining all about how the end time is going to be, then he told them a parable to show them what? That they should always, What? Say it with me. Pray. I know it's just almost left or nine. You can do this. They should always pray and not do what? Give up. And let's just be real frank here. You know what makes people give up? Is when things go on and on in a stressful, despairing way. If there is no light at the end of the tunnel, it's like, man, we're being persecuted and mistreated and there's no end in sight. The first reaction would be, man, I'm chunking this whole thing. And I think Christ knew as the times worsened, His disciples and then His followers today would have the tendency to want to give up. So He said, listen, I've told you all about what's coming, but now let me tell you how to pray because that's what will keep you from giving up. Now go to the word when in verse 8. He tells the story. we get to the story in a minute. He tells the story and then He closes out this parable with an interesting verse again. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, there's a reference again to the second coming, to the end time. Will He find faith on the earth? You say, Todd, what does that mean? Is He looking for like a doctrine of beliefs, or is He looking for the the inner uh, resilience of someone that he, that it hasn't given up? He's looking for that second thing there. He's looking for that person. When He comes again, will He find someone? who though things worsened and though it seemed to get very stressful and though the end times seemed to call everything in the world from you, they remained faithful. And when He comes, that's what He's looking for. Remember, the deception in the end will be so great and so tempting. The Bible says this, check it out, that if it will be so great as if even God's very own elect could be led astray. You should not expect an easy road. The deception, the false teachers, the attack on the gospel will be very intense, to the point that that even those that you would trust with with your entire heart, like well, what are they going to do? And you know what? Just at that moment, Christ will come back. The Bible teaches, and I'm going to go into all the end time stuff now, being a little somewhat general here. But at just that moment when it seems like there's no hope, he'll come back and he's looking for one thing. Who on the earth has has remained faithful? Who didn't give up? You see, there are those who believe in the bigger and better theory that it's just going to get better and better and we'll move into this utopia and I'll have a halo around my head and it will be hollow your course time. I want to say to you with, with clear Boldness and accuracy The Bible speaks nothing about that The Bible says in the Timothy epistles That in the last days Men will grow worse and worse Deceivers will rise up among you Greed will seem to encompass the planet But what does he say to God's family? You cling to the faithful word You hold true You remain steadfast So It's between these two thoughts of his coming again and the end time that he tells this incredibly odd story, which I think, personally, is one of the oddest parables in the entire Bible. He tells one like it in Luke 11. Here in Luke 18, he tells one similar. Let's pick up now in verse 2. You're with me there in Luke chapter 18, verse 2. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Uh Kind of like the very first people's court kind of guy, you know, I mean, he didn't care what anybody thought, the media, the I mean, he's just going to dole out a sentence, right? And then there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. But if he didn't care about God or man, he wouldn't give a widow much time of the day. True. But she wasn't willing to live with that answer, so for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice. Key word there is justice. Things will finally be made right. You catching that? She kept bothering him and finally he said, okay, I'll do whatever I can to make sure that that you are avenged. Here's why. So that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. Underline the phrase, wear me out. You know, if I were to translate that literally from the Greek text, it would be the phrase black and blue. And the judge is here making this uh, almost um, comedic statement that, you know what, if I don't do something, this lady's going to give me a black eye. I <laughs> mean, she's just bombarding me day after day, and I'm still getting so weary and worn out. I'll do something just out of the out of the fear almost that, you know what, she's emotionally, so to speak, just going to turn me black and blue. That, that was uh, uh, her persistence. Now, verse 6 is where we've got to focus. After this story, he says, verse 6, Listen to what the unjust judge says. What did the unjust judge say? He said that, you know what, because you keep bothering me, I'll do something just to get you off my back. I'll make things right just so you will leave me alone. That's what the unjust judge said. Now, here we enter into a a principle by contrast. The judge is not God. Let's clear this up. Okay? Now, we talked about this in Luke 11, but I'll make sure it's very clear. The judge does not represent God. God isn't up there saying, man, Marsha, would you please get off my case? Okay, I'll help you with your kids because if, I, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to, you're going to wear me out. You're going to turn me black and blue, Marcia. That's not God, first of all. Okay, So don't think for a minute that God's saying that he's the judge and we're the widow. He's not, it's actually the opposite. He's showing us a principle by principle by contrast that if, humanly speaking, people respond, if you nag him to death, what would God do just because he loves us so much? It's almost like the opposite. We don't have to nag God. He will make things right. He will avenge us. And it won't even take what the widow did to the judge. Look what he says in verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Now, their persistence is put in a positive way. We should cry out day and night. And by the way, you ought to circle that phrase and connect it to the word pray in verse 1. Because he told this parable. Why? So that we should pray and not give up. And then he makes this statement. His children cry out day and night. I would venture to say here, with just a backbone of uh, of courage, if your prayer life is, is substantially less than crying out day and night, you might not be doing a lot of praying. Hi. How are you doing? Glad you came to church this morning. Say, Todd, I, I pray for my food. Well, your food doesn't need prayer. Well, maybe it does right now with the E. coli thing going on, right? But... For the most part, food doesn't need prayer. The Bible talks about giving thanks for food, by the way. So, okay, well, I can't count that prayer. I, I say my prayers at night before I get tucked in. Yeah, and then you probably fall asleep. Wake up and then you realize you should go to sleep, right? Now, let's, let's think about it, guys. If it's not a memorized prayer or a mealtime prayer, what praying do you really do? If it's not a lay me down and... Tuck me in, you know, that little bedtime prayer with your kids. If it's not, Lord, thank you for the food and bless the million missionaries across the world. If it's not one of those, how much praying do you really do? And we won't, and, and if we look at that question and answer it honestly, we would begin to shed light on perhaps why sometimes God seems distant from us, doesn't he? He says here that when we cry out day and night, God will bring about justice. Will he keep putting them off? The obvious answer is no. Verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Here it is again. The word quickly is, is better translated suddenly. That God's justice on behalf of his children comes rapidly. Maybe not like you pray and the next second it happens. But when it does come, it will come like a thief in the night. See, we're back to the end times again. It will come like lightning in the sky, the Bible says. It will come in the twinkling of an eye. Those are all sudden um, affixes. They're like, wow, what just happened? When God does rain down justice, guess what? It'll happen suddenly. The problem is, most of us give up long before His justice comes. See, we want justice now, don't we? We want God to right the wrongs right now. Hey, God, I've been asking you for three days. God, it's been an hour. Could you speed it up? The show's about over. I mean, we live in a fast food society, a drive-thru economy. And for God to take years, generations, even lifetimes to solve a problem? You know, I'm just not into that kind of God right now. And so it sheds light on some of our misconceptions about prayer. That prayer is crying out day and night. It is, it is confidence in God's justice system. It is, a, it is a, a faith in His timetable. And when His justice does come suddenly, we wouldn't have been shown then to have given up three months prior. But we believe God. And so we cling and we hang on. Does that make sense? This idea of prayer is all tied into the end time. So I don't want us to separate this, this parable from the, from the context. If we do... You may leave here and think, Man, Todd said if I just hang on there, then God will give me what I want eventually. I'm not saying that this morning. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that if you will cling to the to the doctrines and be steadfast to what God has revealed to us, and as his chosen one, remain faithful to him, there is a time coming. There is a time coming when God will right the wrongs. A future is coming. When it won't be like it is now, I don't know when that day is, but it is coming. And our job is to be persistent in praying and crying out to Him day and night for that very time. Now, I want to word it to you like this, because when you think about the parable in that in that context, you begin to see that, that a lot of our prayers are shallow, aren't they? They're, we're praying for tomorrow. We should probably be praying for for the end time. So how do you get through this, this, this valley, this lull known as uh, the human existence, shall we call it, so to speak? Let's word it like this. Here's a good principle to keep in mind. I want you, to, you can't write it down in your worship folder, but you can make a note in your Bible. jot this down, would you? Persistent prayer is where I discover God's perspective and partnership. And that gives me the strength to endure, especially as the end comes draws near. This is just a simple summary statement of, John, of Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. When you look at the end times, it is persistent prayer that gives you the perspective and the partnership to get through the middle time. Amen? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. will leave this behind me and let you look at it for a while because I want you to hear this very carefully. Uh, often a story will, you know, illustrate or open a window to a truth. And so I, this week I searched and, and, and thought, where's the story that talks about prayer and the end times? But the best story is the life of Christ. Let me give you an example. As he entered his, his final, the final days of his life, uh, you know John 17 was what he prayed for his disciples and for all of us. John 17 is the longest prayer in the Bible. Where did it occur? It occurred just before the end of his life. As the stress increased, I use that word humanly speaking, as the pressure mounted, what did he do? Did he scheme with his team? Did he hold more staff meetings? Did he have more committees? No, he prayed even more persistently. I mean, read John 17. You find much out there about Christ's heartbeat for his church today that will be one as he and his Father are one. You find much out there about how the evil one will operate. He prayed and understood God's perspective, and he partnered with his father as the end drew near. Even in the garden, when he was on his knees, the Bible says that he was sweating as it were great drops of blood. That's extreme anguish. He was in the garden praying. In fact, Judas interrupted his prayer time. So as Christ's life was winding down, as the end of his time was coming, what did he find more and more time to do? Say it with me. Pray. And let me just give you an idea of how persistent he prayed toward the end. Watch this. He said, Lord... Now, this is, this is theologically impossible to grasp, so hang with me. He said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup there, speaking of the cup of grief. He was staring at Calvary. He was on his march to death. Crucifixion awaited him. that's a one-way trip, amen, for most people. But he had the tomb in three days in Hades, and he preached captives, free of the captive, and he set them free, and he came back. But for most people, that's a one-way trip. It was in that setting that somehow in Christ's humanity, he actually prayed, is there any way to do this apart from the cross? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. All the classes and all the books have never explained that phrase. I mean, I can... Mentally tell you what that means. I can theologically and scripturally make sure it doesn't contradict the Bible. I can give you that meaning textually. But emotionally, I don't know how the Son of God prays to His Father to let this cup pass you. All it says to me is, only Jesus knew the extent and the depth of the anguish He was about to go through. For me and you. Only He knew the depth of sorrow He was about to experience. It was so deep that his last prayer was, God, if there's any other way, find it. But then what does he pray? Not, say it with me, not my will, but yours. Is that not persistent prayer? And is that not a perspective? Even when you're saying, God, I probably don't even want this, but if it's what you have in mind, I'm in. And is that not a partnership lived out for us? God the Son marching to Calvary on behalf of of His future children, those who believe, one with the Father from John 17 and hanging on a cross as the mediator between God and man. Wow! When our problems come up, as we face the end of time, as we see history moving to a culmination, I'm going to be very deep with you. Here's the four letters... That will get you through it. P-R-A-Y. You say, Todd, I didn't come to church to hear such basic preaching. I didn't come here to hear such simple stuff. Well, let's just read Luke 18, 1 again. In fact, if you have NIV, read it with me. Because I love noticing the obvious. I'm going to be the captain of the obvious this morning. That's Because what we, what we say is, you know, that's the cry of people. Give me something that's new. Give me something that's different. I want to hear what... Here's how you get to the end times. Here's how you make it through the middle so you don't give up. Look what 18.1 says. Ready? Then Jesus, say it with me, told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Church, it is in prayer. That's right. Prayer. That we truly find the perspective and partnership to get through this middle time To the end time. Seminars are great. Books are cool. John Hagee's got the lowdown on the end time. I mean, all these things are great. But I'm going to tell you something. If you're not praying, if you're not persistently crying out day and night for God to bring His justice, then you're doing less than what you should to make it to the end. Prayer is fundamental. Prayer is fundamental to those who will be found faithful at the end. Now, let me shed some light on a couple of key words in this, in this principle, in this text. Can I just jot these down? I'm not be, they may be behind me, so just kind of make notes of this. First of all, when we get God's perspective, that helps me see through the trial. Jot that down. God's perspective helps me see through the trial. I want you to notice verse 6, would you? Verse 6. It says here, Will not God bring about justice? That is a statement of definitiveness. Kind of a long word there. That is a, that is a statement of condition that's, that looked at has already happened, but yet it hasn't occurred yet. It's as good as done in God's mind. But guess who sets the timetable for that? God. And guess what God's not operating on? Your schedule and mine. So, when you think about God's perspective, getting us through the trial, i got to encourage you. You must see it from God's timetable, not your schedule. You might want to jot that down because all of us are schedule freaks, aren't we? There may be a few that aren't, but in a society of Palm Pilots and, and mobile phones, they can actually get live real stats from the playoffs and you can, get, you can stream pictures. I mean, man, we're all into schedules and maximizing every moment. Guess what? God's not really worried about your schedule. Wow, how's that for a bold statement? You know what God's worried about? He's worried about His timetable. And the redemptive plan He set in motion hundreds, thousands of years ago. And there's a day coming when He will put an end to His patience. Listen very carefully. When His patience will end. Check out the epistles in Peter. At that moment, patience ends, judgment begins. Now, some may count God's patience as slowness, Right? They say, man, where is this God you've been talking about? Apparently He's not come in a thousand years. He's forgot about us or He fell asleep. What kind of God do you have? But He says, don't let God's patience be disguised and come off as slowness because God is not slow. But He is waiting for as many people as possible to repent so that none should perish. But one day that will end and God's Son Christ will return. See what I'm saying? At that point, the whole bit of justice begins to unfold. And Guess what? That's what we're waiting on. That's his timetable, not my schedule. I look at us today, and I'll put myself in the lead, as the leader of this pack. I see ourselves as like ball players who quit in the sixth inning. I, mean, I do that more than you want to know. I mean, I'll be in an issue. We'll be talking about things, and I'll suddenly have a thought like, "Good night." I might as well. This is crazy. I'll just, what's the use? And I thank myself to God, snickering and saying, Todd, it's only like the fourth inning. It's the top of the third. It's the bottom of the sixth. Todd, it's not even the ninth inning. And the game has nine innings. I'm upping the game. Let me call the shots, would you? And I so easily want to go back to the locker room, throw in the towel way before the game's over. You know why? Because from my angle, from my vantage point, from my schedule, it seems like it's over. It seems like justice is not possible. But guess what? I'm not calling the game. Amen? God is in charge. His timetable matters. So in prayer, watch this, in prayer, I am able to connect to God's timetable a lot better. If we're not praying, then all we're faced with, all we're seeing most of is our schedule. Our wants. We're like, man, can't God move on my iPod? Can't God move on my planner? Can't God get in sync with what with what my, you know, day timer says. But when we move away our stuff, and watch this, close our eyes in prayer and, and focus on God, suddenly, His timetable becomes really our focus, doesn't it? And you know, there's an immense amount of stress relief in knowing that God's in control. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer to get you through these middle times. When you're praying, ask for God's perspective. And then this idea of God's partnership. Um, God's partnership helps me see who to trust. Just jot this down, would you? His partnership helps me see who to trust. If perspective gets me through the trial, then God's partnership helps me see who to trust. In other words, I love this phrase in verse, uh, I believe it's verse uh, 7. It says, God will bring about justice. And in this phrase, for his chosen ones. That's a very intimate partnership, isn't it? God chose you. God intentionally, divinely went after you. Now, I'm going to give you a big word for this. Okay, I'm going to impress you with me being real smart for once in two and a half years. Watch this. There's a word for that. It's called the doctrine of prescience. It's spelled pre-science. Don't ask me how I got that name. I have no idea. But the doctrine of pre is this doctrine in a nutshell. That God found you, you didn't find Him. Now that's my kind of language there. Amen? And here's what's so neat about that is you are chosen, elected, providentially selected by God. Do I understand that? Not a bit. Do I believe in the free will of man? Completely. There will be people who will tell the Lord no. Do I believe in election? You bet I do. Can I understand them both? Not at all. I can't balance them. I'm not near that smart. But I know the Bible teaches election, predestination, sovereign, sovereign uh, choosing by God. He went after us. He found us. We not once did we go after God. In fact, the Bible says that we were dead in our sins. I've never seen a dead person in a graveyard go after somebody. Have you? So we didn't see God. He came after us, and in our state of, of deadness, not just apathy, not just sleepiness, but in, in, in deadness, God's Spirit moved upon us and, and raised us to spiritual life. He chose us. Wow. So I've got a question for you. If that's how intimately God wants to partner with me, do you think He brought me this far just to drop me off about a mile before the destination? Not at all. God will see me through. You know why? Because His Word promises. God's not going to forget His own Word. He won't deny Himself. So, in this issue of partnership, watch this. I understand that I should trust God's Word, God's promises, not my feelings. Now, that's a hard one too, isn't it? Our schedule and our feelings blur us so badly to to what's really going on. We get our emotions involved, and we get our schedules involved, and we can't see past tomorrow. But in prayer, watch this, in prayer, we see that God is not going to forsake us. We see that He's operating on a timetable far larger than we can imagine. And suddenly, watch this, we find the strength of Luke 18.1. We plant our feet, and we don't give up. Amen? We don't give up. God's perspective. God's partnership. There's a verse in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Um, it says this. Listen very carefully. This will show you that God's going to deliver us. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 9 through 11. It says that God has not appointed us to wrath. Now, I just drop that reference down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. But here's the point. There's a time coming when His wrath will be revealed. But guess who's not been appointed to that? His chosen ones. You have not been appointed to wrath. So when all hell breaks out, whenever that is, some folks think it's the it's seven years prior, you know, that, that we'll escape this, this breaking out of wrath, seven years. Some think it's in the middle. I'm not sure where I am at on that. Is that okay to say? I know this much, though. I am, as I said before, I'm pro-coming. I know he's coming, and that's where I want to stay. I'm not sure if I'm pre-trib or pre- or mid-trib or pre-wrath, but I know he's coming, and that's where I take my stand. So watch this. Whenever his wrath starts, guess who won't be part of it? Yours truly. I trust you won't be. Now that's not saying that we won't endure tough times. That's not saying persecution is not my lot. Are you with me? But the word wrath there, wrath there in First Thessalonians, speaking of this official appointed time when God brings down His justice, guess what? I'll be with Him. The ninth inning... I'll be in the in the in the dugout, cheering on the team, picking out my horse. I'm going to ride back down with him at the Millennium and say, hey, I want this one. If I can ride on this one, please. That's when it begins. So I rest assured on that. I don't trust my feelings. I rest assured on God's, but I trust him. When I pray and, and see God's perspective and his partnership, then you know what? I don't give up. Can you read some verses out loud with me as we think about this whole principle and these, these teachings on prayer here? Let's read some verses out loud. I'm going to roll through a couple of them here. Matthew 26, 40 and 41. These verses all talk about praying. And notice how many of them also talk about the end times. By the way, in this reference here, Matthew 24 and 25 are exclusively about the end of the world, the end of time. And what did he say now in 26, 40, and 41? Read with me out loud with great passion. Here we go. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Speaking here to the disciples in the garden, he went and prayed, came back, found them sleeping. And he said, guys, at a time like this, you should be praying. Let's move forward another verse here. 1 Thessalonians five seventeen. This chapter is about the end times. I mentioned some verses a minute ago to you. Look what he says. In the middle of this whole chapter, he says, pray continually. What does the King James, how does it word this? Someone tell me. Pray without ceasing. You know, there's no special way to translate that. Guess what it means? Pray all the time. I've heard folk, scholars get up and say, what that literally means. I know what it literally means. Pray all the time. Just pray. And it's not hard. It's, it's English. It's clear language. It means pray all time. The time. Someone this week said to me, Todd, I don't know that I think you have to get in a closet and pray. I said, well, you don't have to. I just pray all the time. Now, I think that both of those are very good. We're instructed in scriptures to do both. Private, um, secret prayer is biblical and very effective. And it increases your, your discipline. But you know what? Lifestyle prayer is also important. We ought to merge both of those. And when we do, guess what? We'd be praying all the time. What's wrong with that? Amen? Man, a church of 350 believers who are praying all the time, that'd be awesome. If we did that, maybe this church would rise up and make it to the end times. Maybe your neighbors would be saved. Maybe some things would happen that only the folks in the would say, Wow, there must be a God in heaven. Amen. Because our human scheming, our own human mechanisms only carry us so far, don't they? They carry us to the place where you get the credit. That's where it carries us. Matthew 6. When folks see all that you can do, they say, Hey, way to go. And then that's our reward. And it's done. What we're looking for is a work of God so incredibly out of the ordinary that no one claps for us. They're like, there's no way Brad had a part of that. I know Brad. What do you mean? You're in that church, Brad? That must be of God. And from person to person. "Well, oh, that can't be put something Dennis is part of or, or Todd. No way. I know those guys. But guess what? We're looking for something so incredible from lifestyle Praying all the time that only God gets the credit. Here's one more verse for you. 1 Peter 4.7. Read this with me. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled, so that you can what? Pray. Wow. I mean, could it be any more clear? 1 Peter is like a revisitation of Luke 18.1-8. Hey, the end is near, so guess what? Get your head screwed straight. Clear the cobwebs out of your brain. Because guess what? you got to pray. Praying should be the first and foremost thought of God's children as the end approaches. Some suggestions for you. Some suggestions. Pray when you get up. Make it a practice that as you roll over to hit the floor, you just start praying. Pray when you turn on the shower. Pray when you fix your hair. For me, that'd be with a towel. For others, maybe something else, okay? Pray when you eat your cereal. Pray when you drive your car. Pray at lunch. Just pray all the time. Pray before you bat at the softball game this afternoon. Pray before you, you fix your car or you change your oil. Pray when you're going home for dinner. Pray before you turn the TV on, for sure. <laughs> Pray when you have your snack at night. Pray when you go to bed. Just pray. Just pray all the time. It can be out loud. It could be in your heart. Just pray. Pray all the time. Pray with your wife. Pray with your kids. Pray with your husband. Pray with your co-workers. Pray with the policeman on the corner. Pray with the fireman. Pray with everybody. Just pray with everybody. Just pray with everybody. All the folks having babies. Pray with your doctors, your nurses. Pray all the time. We did that in our hospital room. The babies, the babies were born. One at a time, of course. But the babies were born. and They'd take the baby and cut the cord and set the baby on where with Julie. And I'd say, let's just all pray right now. So the doctor, you know, no one, no one argues against prayer. So they're like, oh, okay, sure, they're all holding their utensils and their gloves and their masks. They're like, okay, and they're just praying. So I start praying. Just pray all the time. You're going to catch some people off guard. They're going to feel a little awkward, but so What? Just be polite, be courteous, and pray. And learn to pray quick. That way they won't be too mad at you. But they'll be like curious. Like, man, what is with that dude, you know? Or do that. What's going on with that? And you know what? In doing that, you will find that your feet will become firmly planted in God's timetable and His promises. And you won't feel near the pressure to give up. But I'd venture to say, for those of you who don't pray very much... Giving up could be a weekly thought. So I'm here not as your counselor. I don't have some new tactic. I don't have some undiscovered method. I've got the clear revelation from God the Father. That says as the end approaches, the way to get through it is to pray. I thought about this song this week. Let me read some of the words to you. Uh, It's the old hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. All of you, I'm not sure all of you know that, but sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. Listen to these words and how it talks about the stress and the pressure we get under. That calls me from a world of care, bids me at my Father's throne to make all my wants and wishes known. That's a good place to make them known, isn't it? When you can get His perspective and His partnership on them. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and often escape the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. And yet, what's the one thing we avoid like the plague? Sometimes we just don't pray, do we? So this morning, on day 8 of our adventure, between day 8 and day 14, will you pray? Will you pray more this week? Will you pray persistently? Getting God's perspective In partnership. Let's pray, shall we?